welcome to episode 154 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I heard some frantic page turning going on in our introduction. Yes, I, uh, I'm i all set with a little bit of Calvin's commentaries for today's show. I'm pretty stoked. <laughs> I bet you are. I appreciate that you say that like that's something that's unusual to this particular series. I know you got Calvin always at the it's ready. It's true. He's kinda, he kind of lives with me. He's like everywhere. That, for some reason, just reminded me of that old hymn. He walks with me. He talks with me. <laughs> yeah, except that's supposed to be about Jesus, not Calvin. Oh, I know. I know. But, I mean... It just seemed so reminiscent the way that you described that. But speaking of Calvin and speaking of Reformed, which this podcast is somewhat about, do you mind if I launch into an affirmation for this week? Let's do it. I figured you couldn't turn me down. So I'm actually just affirming with all the little fun intricacies, interconnected things that happen in a culture and especially the Reformed tradition. So my example is I have this good friend who's a pastor. He has three children. His youngest son, his only son, is just under the age of five. And recently he asked his son if he, he's also a pastor, if I didn't say that. Uh, Recently he asked his son if he would like to be a pastor. And his son responded with, no, I don't really like beards. (laughs) So I just love that this little child (laughs) has grown up with this distinct impression that with being a pastor comes the requirement of facial hair. And, you know, a lot of people take that very seriously in the form tradition. There's good history there. And so I'm just affirming with all the little fun things that we can kind of, all the inside jokes, like the inside baseball of reform theology, which is equal parts, like the little pieces of theology that we talk about, but also the little ways in which we behave and the things that we like. Yeah. I think that's one of the qualifications for elder, isn't it? It's in, it's in the Greek, yes. I think. That's factually correct. Must have a beard. Yes. How long have you had your beard? Oh, I don't even know. I mean, actually, I think uh, now that I think about it, I started growing my beard because your little sister told me she liked beards when I first met her. So I've always loved I started. Her. I started growing my beard to impress your sister. <laughs> so and and see, I just never look went how much back. good has come out of that. I know. I know. It's true. I mean, it's it's. It's a chore sometimes, although your your beard is much more like wizard style than mine. Mine is very like, <laughs> I keep mine style. very like, very <laughs> trim. It's like just, just past a five o'clock shadow most of the time, which uh, is pretty you, easy to maintain. Are you equating me with like the John Knox style beard? Would you say he is wizard like? Uh, maybe like Covenanter is a different level of beard. Oh, man. Right now, your beard is pretty trim. Sometimes after you let it go for a while, it gets like a little out of control, which I, I love. I like it when it's out of control. <laughs> You're the only one, apparently. But yeah. I was just curious if you remembered when you started and why you did. And you have a great story for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think we were out. Everybody was out getting drinks early on in the first semester. And I don't know. She just said, I like a guy with a beard. And I was like, mental note, grow a beard. Boom. Done Boom. deal. Yeah. All right. How about you? What are you affirming with this week? Uh, I am affirming a book called, and this is like the most Puritan of all titles, although it's not written by a Puritan. It's The Distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology, 
a comparison between 17th century particular Baptists and Pado Baptist Federalism, which is a book by uh, Denault Pascal. Uh, sorry, Pascal Denault. Did I get it right the first time? My brain is all messed up. Uh, but put those two words somewhere into Google. <laughs> There's probably not that many of them. Uh, but it's a great book. And really the kind of the thesis of the book is to show how uh, particularly 1689 federal uh, theology grew out of a difference in ecclesiology rather than uh, some sort of uh, specific difference in sacramentology. So he's arguing that the, the covenant theology that undergirds the ecclesiology of the particular Baptists in England and the Presbyterians was different. And that that difference is what drove their sacramental theology, where most articulations of the that account start with a difference in sacramental theology and work their way out from that. So I'm not super far into it, but I've heard really good things about it so far. It's been just a just a pleasant kind of a low key read. Um, it's if you're looking for a good introduction to 6989 federalism, this is a really good one to go with. Yeah, I have to admit, when I heard you say that title, the first thing that popped in my head was, yeah, this is probably a low-key read. This is probably is, really chill. It actually is pretty straightforward. <laughs> it, it, the title is, like, pretty lofty, but the book is actually really approachable. Well, like, you summarized it well. It's a puritanical title. Like, I've yeah. thought recently, because of our conversations l talking about Reformed Preaching by Joel Beakey, that it would be awesome if you just dropped, like, William Perkins or John Owen. Like, take them to the banner of truth, trust. Yeah. Let them see the titles. I feel like they would be like, what are these lazy short titles? I have yeah. no idea what these books are about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that'd that be an John interesting experience. That was your John Owen impression? Yes. Are you wearing red boots? <laughs> no, but I wish. That's, listen, that's a personal question. I don't have to answer <laughs> that. So, what are you denying tonight, Jesse? So this is a little bit of a, no, it is a serious denial. And usually I have like more of the fun kind, but I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I've just, it's not necessarily that I've seen some examples of this, but I've just been processing this more. And I'm denying against Christians using vulgar language on any scale. And it's because my personal experience with this has been, or not only I think does the Bible speak very strongly, Paul in particular, about the Christian not peppering their everyday conversation with vulgarities or vulgar speech or uh, like swearing of almost any kind, uh, you know, especially because that's common these days to use like a badge of hipness or authenticity or just yeah. to kind of show like I'm like everybody else. But I think actually that's the very problem that when you hear somebody who is professed to be a follower after the Lord Jesus Christ, then at some point use language that is similar to everybody else in its expression. It carries some kind of vulgar connotation by way of its historical connection or its connection in, in culture. That just automatically wipes out the testimony in most cases. Because yeah. what I think most people are speaking, or most people are thinking, especially those who are non-believers, is this person talks just like me. They don't sound any different. And I actually think even if it is somewhat puritanical, that differentiation is such an opportunity for ministry that I think it's trivialized because we say things like, well, we should be able to justify the language that we use because they're just words. That we, can, we can mean them to mean whatever we want them to mean. Right. I don't mean them in the way that everybody else is interpreting. But the problem is everybody else is interpreting them in, in that right. common use. Yeah. So I think it's, I, I just want to deny against that because I've really seen that hurt the testimonies of some Christians recently. And what's a shame is that it saddens me because they're not often realizing that's hurting their testimony. Yeah. And other people are, are equating them with just kind of normal unbeliever lifestyle 
only because of the things that they say. And, that, and that's what's really awful. So we should just cut that stuff out because it's just not helpful. It doesn't help us to identify. It doesn't make us seem super cool. It just makes us seem plain and blah and compromising. And it, it's just one of those things where we're getting judged on the use of that language, even while we're trying to be you know, really solid followers of Jesus. This just undoes so much of that, if, if only in the minds of those who are listening to us talk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when, when you see certain or hear certain kinds of words coming out of a person's mouth, whether they want to try to justify them or not, the words that are coming out of a person's mouth reflect what's in their heart. And so the question is, is, is what's in your heart holiness and a desire to glorify God with your speech, or is it profanity, right? And I mean, like, when we even talk about the difference between sanctified speech and profane speech, like that's a religious category. Profanity right. is a religious category. It's right. it's the opposite of holy. And so when we say that someone is using profanity, we, we literally are saying that their speech is the opposite of sanctified. So I think, I think you can get um, bogged down sometimes in, in language. Like you can sometimes overemphasize a particular word and you can sort of make it a badge of honor that you uh, abstain from a particular word, even if even if what that word represents is still in your heart. It actually really bothers me, um, you know, even like minced oaths, when people just swap out a word to make it slightly less profane, that actually bothers me almost as much uh, as if they were just using the profane words sometimes too. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, that's why I'm trying to be even like diplomatic in this denial, because I've heard a lot of arguments over the years for this idea that language is fluid and it is, and yet it still carries very strong connotations. And so many Christians will say, well, I'm not using profane language here. I'm just using language that's common to the culture. But right. I think it's really about the testimony. And I think as Christians, you're right. We almost, we did do need to hold ourselves to a little bit of a higher standard there with where profanity and language swapping comes into this kind of Venn diagram where they meet or overlap with one another. So here's an example. And I'll just use the language because it's not horrible language per se, but it's language I've become increasingly convicted about. So this idea of like, you know, kind of just expressing shock or awe at something and using the word holy as any part of that. So you know, like yeah. holy cow, for instance, I, I've just been convinced that like that is language that is reserved for God always right. all the time in, in every situation. And so even something as small as that, you're right, because what it's, what it's expressing is a lack of connectivity between the mind and the heart with respect to how we speak and express ourselves. So I'm just trying to get that more in line. But I think that Christians, by and large, use t far too much language. And oftentimes, yeah. have you ever been in a situation, I know you've seen this on like the internet at least, particularly among sometimes popular pastors where they want to push out. They want to have a little bit of shock in what they're saying. So they'll use language purposefully and then they'll use that as an excuse to say, see, I'm trying to draw you in. I'm trying to get yeah. your attention. And that's just unnecessary in my opinion. That yeah. That is not a strong witness at all. It's just lazy too. I mean, it's funny. I used to have, you know, you run into people who say like, well, I, you know, I just use that language to make a point. And when you ask them, like, well, are you not able to make your point in, in without using that? Well, yeah, I mean, I could I could make my point without <laughs> right. using that. Well, then why don't you? Well, why should I have to? Because the Bible says not to use unholy and corrupting language. Well, that's not unholy and corrupting. Well, would you say that in front of your pastor? Well, no, but I mean, like, it's when you push people right. on it, like, it's, it's really clear. Even, you know, it's funny, even in, like, the secular world, 
there's certain words that you have a context for. Like you're not going to go into an important business meeting and drop a bunch of profanities. So why is it that that word in a business context, you understand it's not acceptable, but when you're using it in your common parlance, you're like, oh, well, it's no big deal. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Like we need to be the people who are the most careful about our speech. And, and even for a theological reason, right? God created language and God is the word like that's a, that we've talked about this, how like the very nature of God is tied to verbal revelation. And so when we use our words in a careless way, we're actually imaging God in a certain way that is not accurate to who God is. And that's right. why, you know, people think of the third commandment just in terms of like saying God's name vainly, or if they're, you know, if they're pretty well versed in the catechisms in sort of bearing God's name and sort of being a Christian and not really acting as a Christian, but even just using language in a profane way is imaging God in reverse. And so we're committing blasphemy when we don't honor God by using sanctified and um, pure language insofar as we can. So I think that's a really great point. So this was just my call, drawing all that to a point to just encourage us to have more of that sanctified language and to be super thoughtful and maybe even more conservative, not because we have a list of do's or don'ts with respect to what we say, but because loving God and showing forth a witness that points others to God, to that vision of God, as you said, by way of even the things that we say, is so important. And what's odd is this is a small thing in many ways. Yeah. Where, you know, I'm kind of encouraging all of us to be careful with what we say and just not use certain words. And what's strange is how just doing something that small, people notice that. They yeah. really notice that, um, especially in the place where I work with uh, the other friends that I have. They notice that. And the funny thing is, I don't often realize that they do, but something will come up or somebody will say something or somebody will make a joke and they'll say something like, oh, I would, you know, this happened recently where somebody's like, yeah, if Jesse ever said anything like that, I would absolutely pass out. I would just die. Yeah. And, and that's because they understand that there's a certain quality of my language, but this is not like I've never given them a speech, never, never heard me talk about it like this. Yeah. They just know that there are certain places I don't go. And it's such an oddity that something just like that how we choose to speak could be such a strong witness, but it really is. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So enough on that. What do you got that you're denying against? So last week we denied against Todd from the average everyday worship leader <laughs> podcast yep. for uh, mistakenly saying that Ashley and I live in Vermont. And today someone sent me a link uh, to a I'm not exactly sure what it was, but apparently Joe Biden was visiting a town called Keene, New Hampshire, which uh, is nestled down in this, this sort of southwestern corner of New Hampshire, right on the border of New Hampshire and Vermont. Beautiful. And uh, it's funny because he said, you know, I really love this place. It's beautiful. I've been here before. And then he said, and what's not to love about being in Vermont? <laughs> and... You know, if if maybe like, you know, he's been traveling a lot and he lost track of what city he was in. No, no. Like excuse. if he thought that he was in Brattleboro, which is just across the river from Keene no, on the Vermont side, maybe that'd be OK. But he clearly knew he was in Keene. And like, it seems like you'd be more likely to forget what particular city you're in versus what state you're in. But um, not as though I was going to vote for Joe Biden in any possible universe. 
but now I'm going to actively campaign against him. Not not because of his politics. I mean, there's enough to target there, but just because he confused Vermont and New Hampshire. He should lose the votes for both New Hampshire and Vermont for that. Oh, he's going to. Timestamp this as the yes. moment that everything went south for Joe Biden's campaign. Yeah, this, I this mean, is all it takes these days is one little like mistake like that. I one know. little, and this I this know. is a big mistake. Now, the, here's why this is also super unforgivable. Not just because, in many ways, Vermont is a bad word. I'm sorry, I used it just there, but it also is. because, where is the first primary? Like he should know. know this. I know it's a big deal. Like politically, it's actually a really big deal. Exactly. But so we need a that's good super hashtag. Insulting. We need like a good hashtag for this anti-Biden, anti-Todd from the Average Everyday Worship Leader podcast <laughs> campaign. Sure, I'm sure Todd loves it. We've just grouped him with Joe Biden. But listen, Todd, you did it to yourself. You did. You did it to yourself twice. So don't blame us. Blame yourself. And also blame Joe Biden. In some ways, I sense that we're really only hurting ourselves, you and I, because after that episode aired last week, then it became like this great joke among people who know me to ask if I was from Vermont. And yeah. I have a lot fewer friends this week than I did last week, but that's just how it goes. I got a, a, a video from um, Tim Shorey, who was formerly a um, an admin in the Reform Pub. And there are two things that I hate uh, maybe three things will go like proverb style. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I, I hate Apple AirPods. I just think you look like a moron when you're wearing those AirPods and they just drive me nuts. <laughs> Every what? time I see someone with them, I have to resist the urge to just slap them right out of their face. And he okay. sent me a video and he said he actually uh, intentionally put his AirPods in in order to send me the video because he wanted to trigger me twice. And then he asked me, how's Vermont? And I was like, <laughs> jokes on you. I'm actually in Vermont right now. So you fail. So this has now become the why we hate Vermont podcast. So we're going to rename the show. We're going to get a new logo. It's going to be great. I, we, what we need to figure out, though, is uh, do we have any people who are listening from the state of Vermont? I haven't heard anybody and you'll no Vermont backlash. Yeah. So I don't know if that's because they're just that chill, but I, I know that people in Vermont w would fight back they're, I'm I'm sure like they're, I, if somebody was listening, I'm sure they would get in their Subaru Outback from Vermont right now and drive. <laughs> they're too drive stoned here to find me. It's, it's all the pot. <laughs> they can't really get excited about anything. So they also know that New Hampshire has like more guns per capita than anywhere else in the world. So is that true? I don't think it is, but it's close enough. <laughs> we do love our guns in New Hampshire. That is factually correct. It's true. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. I would love for everybody to go experience it. Go hike the White or the Green Mountains. Go go enjoy the lakes. Just go, Especially it's the, the season is coming up, Tony. When I know that you – when I live in New Hampshire, this was, of course, always the worst season to live in New Hampshire because of the leaf peepers who just yeah. invade New Hampshire because – that is the place where if you want to see God's creation, it's all its glory, all the beautiful leaves changing colors, you really need to go to New Hampshire. There's no other place I would say in uh, continental U.S. that compares to New Hampshire this it's time It's true. Year. It's true. The leaf peepers are the third thing that I hate in that little proverb sequence. <laughs> so, so there's that. Can I tell a quick story before we actually get into real stuff you about can. leaf peeping? Maybe I've told this on the podcast. You so, may proceed. 
I'm going to call out my mother, who is also your mother-in-law. One time during the, the peak leaf peeping season, we were coming back from someplace in the car. She was driving. I was in the passenger seat. And as the, is the case in New Hampshire, so much of the traveling there is done on back roads, which means if you get behind somebody, you're stuck there for a long period of time because there's just no passing. And so we were in such a situation, and we were behind a bus that was clearly leaf peeping. Like, I think it actually said, like, leaf tours or something on it. It was like a New York license plate, which is, like, the worst combination of things. And so this bus was just taking its sweet time. So there was one place to pass on this large stretch of road. It's actually Route 4 on this large (laughs) stretch of road. And it's uphill, and there is a passing lane for, I would say, I don't know, maybe like a tenth of a mile, right? So... We, she's ready for this to come. She's very upset that the bus is taking a sweet time. I know exactly what you're talking about too. Yeah. She's ready to pass it. And so she gets up, she's building up speed. Of course the lane comes up, she pulls alongside the bus. And then I've never seen anything like this before or since she actually has the window down and she yells out, peep this baby (laughs) while she drives by and passes the bus. I can totally see mom doing that. Ironically, in a Subaru Outback. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was fantastic. So th- this is. These were great affirmations of denials. Can I just affirm what just happened here? It was great. <laughs> Loved every uh, second of it. Our yes. affirmations and denials sometimes are like two and a half minutes long, and sometimes they're twenty-one and a half minutes long. Well, apparently, this is how people can get a sense of what our triggers are, because the one about New Hampshire is like taking up a lot of time between this week and last. I really need a I really need an anti Joe Biden anti Vermont hashtag. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like hashtag Biden our time in New oh. Hampshire. No, because that makes it seem like we support him. Right. Yeah. We yeah. can't have that. We can't. I have don't that. know. We'll figure so, it but, out. Before we get mistaken for being a podcast that does support Joe Biden, let's get into our pro Micah. Yes. Episode. Hashtag so, all Micah all the time. <laughs> or I suppose on this show, it'd be like, hashtag all Micah 66% of the time. <laughs> That's, listen, I just want to say I appreciate that math joke, but I'm sure most people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But that was, that was really great. So what are we talking about tonight with respect to the book of Micah? So we are uh, launching into the second half of chapter two. So we're looking at Micah chapter two, verses six through 11. And uh, last week we talked a little bit about how God was sort of continuing to bring down this judgment on sort of the elites of Jerusalem and uh, to a lesser degree, but but not entirely, uh, onto the elites in the capital of Samaria as well, or Samaritan Samaria as well. And so this kind of continues on and it, it drills down even further as we get into it on what the particular sin of these elites in Jerusalem was. And then also kind of beyond the outward sin of what was going on, it drills into sort of the inward stubbornness and rebelliousness of the people and how they responded to the Lord's correction that had already come to them through several prophets. So um, I'm going to go ahead and start reading here. And one of the things that I found interesting about this chapter, and we'll have to we'll have to nerd out a little bit more on the language than we usually do, is that depending on which translation you're reading, the text can actually have a very different sense. And that's that's why I have Calvin open in front of me, because he does a good job in my reading of really explaining the multiple different ways that the Hebrew could be taken. So I think a lot of our listeners, you know, we're used to 
Uh, we're used to English. We're used to Greek, maybe. We're used to Latin. We're used to these kinds of language that have a little bit of ambiguity in the way that they're written sometimes, but are pretty clear in terms of what they're trying to say. Hebrew, especially Hebrew in poetic uh, poetic sections, like a lot of the prophets, can be a lot more ambiguous and difficult. Um, so it's important to go back to some of these original language resources that we have access to and really read and consider them because it can make a big difference in how, how the text is laid out and what it's communicating. So I'm going to start reading in verse 6. Uh, I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such, such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walk uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thoughts of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this place is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction... If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So the reason I say that this can, the way that the language uh, is laid out can make a big difference is because the first really like eight verses, it's not entirely clear from the text who is supposed to be speaking in which instance. So right. you could you could read it this way, where the people are saying, do not preach, thus they preach, or thus I preach. Um, and, and so you can read this as the people are saying to Micah, stop preaching these calamities to us. Um, you could read this as, Micah saying to the people, do not preach. And thus they preach, the people preach to Micah that one should not preach of the things that Micah is preaching to them. So depending on how you understand the language, it can make either a subtle or we'll see in some parts of this a pretty significant difference. So Calvin right. is is a good resource on this. I don't know that we're going to get into all the details here, but it's good for us to take a look at those when you're reading through one of these, because you really have to have someone help you who understands the Hebrew. And just by hearing that, you should have picked up that, at least the ESV here, their particular interpretation is the suggestion that Mike is confronting the false prophets who support right. the land robbers that we spoke about last week. Right. And it's them who have sought to silence him. So that's where you get the supported translation of the, the Hebrew phrase rendered, thus they preach, literally this idea of dripping words. Right. They're translating as they prophesy. So others argue that the greedy and the corrupt leaders themselves have tried to silence the prophet. But you see in that particular translation that basically they're, they're coming from the perspective that uh, Micah is coming against those who are saying, do not preach. And he's preaching. Yeah. Yeah. And so the text, you know, I, I actually think Calvin's position is a little bit different. Um, he, he actually is saying that this is Micah who is sort of correcting and rebuking the false prophets rather than the false prophets trying to do the same to Joe or to Micah. Um, and I actually think that that makes a little bit better sense of the text. And so rather than this be like Micah kind of confronting them and then a series of rhetorical questions that he asks to them, these are actually rhetorical questions that the prophets are kind of responding to Micah with. So they say to Micah, do not preach. And then they preach to him, you should not preach such things. Disgrace right. will not overtake us. 
And then he says, um, should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walk uprightly? So those first three rhetorical questions are the prophets, the false prophets responding to Micah, basically saying, this isn't in the nature or character of God for him to judge us for this, right? Should this right. be said, O house of Jacob, the, the answer, the implied answer in the language is, um, an answer of no. So we really should read this more along the lines of this shouldn't be said, O house of Jacob, should it? The Lord hasn't grown impatient, has he? These aren't his deeds, are they? So there's a rhetorical element where the implied answer is no. But then the text flips over here. And now it's it's God or, or Micah uh, speaking the words of God saying, do not my words do good to him who walk uprightly. So his response to the the false prophets here is to point out the fact that God's words are good to those who receive them. So he right. he God doesn't preach disaster to his people. He preaches disaster to those who are rebellious against him. Right. It might be helpful just to hear a different translation real quick to just see exactly yeah. how there is such a difference with what you're saying. So this is from the NASB. This is verses six and seven of Micah chapter two. You, you'll hear immediately the difference in perspective here, and it's pretty stark. So verse six reads, do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one who is walking uprightly. So it's amazing that there is such a difference there in the interpretation. You can see it's, it's impounded in how we're getting it translated. Either way, I think what's plain and clear is that the speakers are expressing this common but mistaken belief that because of Israel's special relationship with Yahweh, no judgment is going to fall on them. And that's something that I actually wanted to unpack with you a little bit, because here I think are some amazing implications for as you and I sit here in the 21st century and try to understand what God is saying to his people then and something about God's character now. Because I agree that he gives this answer and it basically says like the last line is this answer in verse seven to these rhetorical questions. And it's this idea that Yahweh's blessing is not unconditional. So his word benefits only those who submit to his authority. And I've heard so many pastors and I think what are really good teachers promulgate this idea that God will not punish because that has already been taken care of on the cross. And yet I think there is a misunderstanding that, yes, that punishment is complete, but there's a misunderstanding there, I think, sometimes absorbing discipline into punish. And those are two very different words. So yeah. if, if we're understanding like the punishment that we're talking about here, this sense of suffering or pain or loss that serves as some type of retribution, that's different than in the Christian life receiving discipline, which is this orderly or prescribed conduct or pattern of behavior that is we are molded into by way of some kind of exogenous force that is pressed upon us. Yeah. And so I think what we're seeing here is that uh, really, I guess the case I'm making is that discipline is really the blessing, the expectation and the right of the one who has had punishment that's been meted out in their place. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, that's straight out of the book of Hebrews, right? I mean, right. the author there, um, he, he straight out says, you know, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Right. And then he says, a, a, a person who's not disciplined is an illegitimate son. 
And so the, the picture that he's painting is, you know, wh when a man has a son, um, you know, through um, immoral sexual behavior and he, he has a son out of that. He, he doesn't discipline that son. He, he doesn't he doesn't correct that son. He, he doesn't care about that son. And so when we think about the chastisement or the discipline of the Lord, rather than be evidence of God's displeasure with us or of God's disapproval or God's anger towards us, it's actually evidence that God, in fact, loves us and considers us his sons or daughters, that he would he would actually uh, sanctify us, not not through our sin in terms of like our sin sanctifying us, but right. using our sin as an occasion to, to, ju uh, to justly uh, discipline us in order to bring about further growth in holiness. And that's why I see is like the grievous error, error here, right? Is this idea that they're so mistaken that God would not allow any harm to befall them either generally or specifically. And they're making that case because ironically, they're saying we're already so privileged in God's eyes that he would not allow that to happen to us. Right. And I, right. I think we can fall into that in a, in maybe a little bit less subtle, but if we were to press on that and really pull at the root, we're going to be pulling up some of this same ideology that I think we, we find in here that Mike is railing against. Yeah. And the other element that really struck me as I was reading this is that, you know, this is, this is the world we live in, right? We, we've talked about sure. how Micah, Micah seems to be sort of the eternal contemporary. And we find that all over the scriptures. But in my study of Micah, it really seems to be the case that it's almost like he's preaching to our generation, right? Because we have these false prophets that have come forward. And rather than rather than preach sin and, and the gospel of repentance, which the gospel wasn't any different in Micah's day than it is now, we, may, we, we have a little bit more clarity as to how it is that God forgives us. But God is always forgiven those who repent through, you know, by grace through their faith. So it's not as though the gospel is different, but we live in an era where rather than uh, those who consider themselves to be pastors preach the law and the gospel, they preach prosperity and, and good times, even though, right. you know, we live in a sinful generation, maybe not more sinful than previous generations, but I think probably definitely more apathetic than previous generations. And, you know, Matthew Henry says this, and, and this is something that I think we should all remember. He says, God's words are good words to good people and speak comfortably to them. So when we hear God's word preached, even when we're hearing the law preached, if it's not comfortable to us, if it does not bring us comfort and satisfaction, that's a real cause for concern. If you're sitting under preaching and it's um, it's offensive to you, you have to ask yourself, is it offensive? You know, it could be offensive because the pastor is preaching something that's not biblical. But more commonly, I would think it's actually offensive to us because there's some sort of part of our life that we have not yet surrendered to God to be sanctified. And so we have to remember when God's word is faithfully preached, it should be sweet to us, not bitter. Right. And there is something to be said here, which is kind of like the opposite of the relief of what we're talking about. If God desires for us through, by way of bringing sanctification into our life to discipline us by his good grace, because he is a good and loving father, that also means then that there is a special blessing in obedience, which I, th I think sometimes we, we shy away from that because we want to speak yeah. about God's grace and mercy in such a strong way that we make God to, to sound like he's egalitarian. But there is a special blessing for those who are obedient to the Lord. And this is why the psalmist talks about there being a prosperity and a success 
in obedience. And like you said, that's, that's juxtaposed against this nonsense, this bill of goods that's sold out of the prosperity gospel where it's all manifested in physical belongings and some kind of achievement of, you know, self-aggrandizement. What Mike is talking about here is like that there's a special covering for those who are under the obedience of God, that there's a blessing that he brings into our lives. It's not the absence of hardship, but it is the ability to fall under his covenant blessing, under yeah. his care and kind concern, under his compassion and loving kindness, even in the midst of those hardships. And that is something that I think we, tr- we tend to underemphasize. And basically what Mike is saying here is you've got this all wrong. You think that because you have some pedigree, that you have even some kind of historical connection or you have some genetic connection to something that predisposes you to be part of the elite, at least in God's eyes, that that somehow gives you this covering. But it's really actually your obedience expressed from the heart, as you said, where the abundance truly lies or the yeah. lack thereof. Yeah. And so I th- I, there's something there like for us, there's something that we need to tease out because we so often think, well, we don't want to, we want to emphasize the law in so much as it expresses to us that we are, it beats us down. It expresses that we cannot achieve on our own what God can only do for us. And that is true. But then we often leave it there and just walk right like smack into grace as if to say that we can mostly ignore the law. But the law, the grace to drive us back into the law as God, for godly living, such that we should be just as respectful and maybe fearful of it, not because disobedience means that our identity with God is severed, but more so because our identity should be expressed in obedience to the law. And yeah. in that obedience, we receive crazy blessing. Yeah. Do you ever read one of those sentences that you're like, if I could just read one, if I could just write one sentence like that for the rest of my <laughs> life, I'd be all set. Yeah, I mean, whenever I'm reading the Puritans, that's exactly what happens. This is what Calvin says uh, about this. It says, it hence appears that they were not the people they wished to be deemed. That Mm. is the people of God. For the first condition in God's covenant was that he should rule among his people. Inasmuch then as these men would not endure to be governed by divine power and wish to have full and unbridled liberty... It was the same as though they had banished God far from them. Wow. And so, you know, I think when I look at, I look at the church, you know, the visible church, and I look at people who are peddling a false gospel, um, they have no claim to the name of Christ if they're not, um, if they're not truly trusting in him in a way that produces faith and obedience. Now we've, we've spoken very clearly, uh, on this show about what we think about the prosperity gospel and about confusions in the ordo salutis and what it can do to assurance of faith. But, but the, the fact of the matter is true, genuine saving faith will necessarily produce a life of obedience and sanctification, right? You, you receive the whole Christ in uh, in union, not not just for justification, but also for sanctification. And so when, when someone is living life as though God is not their Lord, that God is not their sovereign, um, we have no reason and they have no reason to believe that he is in fact their sovereign when all evidence points to the contrary. And, right. and I think what he says is really insightful here, that the first condition in God's covenant was that he should rule among his people, right? 
Now, now, depending on how you slice up the Ten Commandments, the, you know, there's the prologue. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Like that is a statement of sovereignty over the people of Israel that frames everything that follows. So even though even though the Reformed tradition wouldn't consider that a commandment per se, it's establishing why it is that God has the right to then institute these 10 moral precepts that govern all of life, because he is the sovereign Lord who not only created them, but redeemed and rescued them. So when we as as people who claim to be redeemed by Jesus, when we basically spit in his face and say like, well, I'm not going to follow that command. I'm not going to listen to that rule. I'm not going to do what he asks. We're basically saying, you're not my sovereign. You're not my Lord. And right. if you've rejected Jesus as Lord, you've rejected Jesus as Lord. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. Right. Yeah, that's a good word. I mean, there's so much of that kind of teaching that does happen today. And because it sounds good or mostly good or like something that might be good, we take it as more or less something that's biblical. And it's interesting that kind of Micah, at least in this pericope, wraps this up with like one of my favorite verses in all of Micah. I know it should probably be the one about, you know, what does the Lord require of you? But <laughs> I just love this because it's like amazing turn of phrase. And I'm going to read it from the NASB again, just because the NSB is like a workhorse translation because yeah. of how literal it's trying to be. So this is going to sound a little bit strange to the ear, but just like, just soak in this for a second. Cause this is such a great verse. It's verse 11. So Mike writes, if a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. And it's just such a, a crazy, like, it's almost like he's saying, do you realize like how ridiculous you guys have become? Like you've grown so spiritually inept that you're easily deceived by any charlatan or false prophet about like any yeah. matter of things, like any subject matter, even like liquor and wine. And when I was reading this, this reminded me of this ad, I think that was, it was originally, maybe it was posted to Twitter originally, but I think it was posted elsewhere. I don't know if you saw this on the interwebs. It was like a long time ago, I think, but it was this advertisement from, I think, Royal Dutch Airlines. Do you know what I'm talking about? You heard of this? I've heard of the Royal Dutch Airlines. Oh, okay. So, well, that's great. So they had this, they had this advertisement, and it was in support of gay rights. It was like their Pride Amsterdam uh, event, which, of course, is in the country in which they operate. And so it's a picture. Envision this. It's a picture of a seatbelt of an airline seatbelt. You know, the airline seatbelt has like two, just like two ends. It has right. the latch and then the faceplate where you release the latch. So what this, the caption says, it doesn't matter who you click with, happy, hashtag Pride Amsterdam. And so it's a set of three combinations <laughs> or three permutations. So, and, and just because you, you brought up some excellent math before, and I bring this math up just because this is the kind of thing I think Mike is talking about. Like this, this is going to sound super like intellectual, like super, uh, like this is, this is the proper way to think about something. So they have three combinations here. And so it's two latches together, two uh, latch keys together, and then one latch key and one faceplate. So, um, if you were to do that math, what that math would look like to see like how many combinations are there, these different permutations, it's going to be like four factorial divided by four minus two factorial times two factorial, divide that whole thing by two. That sounds really super awesome, right? Like here are all the combinations in nature. We can figure out here are all the combinations that should go together. And of course, they're making a statement by saying, well, it doesn't matter your sexual orientation. And we're going to use our seatbelts as an example. Here's where this comes into play, at least for me with Micah, with what he's talking about, the, the, sheer, the sheer like insanity and nonsensical nature of what's going on here is I guarantee you 
the way the Royal Dutch Airline puts forward this little advertisement says it doesn't matter who you click with to us. I guarantee that when you're on one of their airlines, when you're on the plane and they hit turbulence, there's only one combination of those seatbelts that they're going to require you to use. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it's, I think in some ways that's, that's kind of what he's driving at here is, is like you have become so preoccupied with everything that's other God, that's not God, getting all of your wisdom from things that you think uh, are actually wiser than God himself that you will be fooled by anybody because you've become so spiritually inept. And that spiritual ineptness impacts all manners of our life. I think that's what we're seeing in our culture. What we have yeah. not predominantly is a tolerance problem. We don't have predominantly uh, a racial or gender problem. Those are all symptoms of sin right. and spiritual ineptness. And this is where we need God himself by the power of his Holy Spirit to come in and regenerate our lives. We cannot manufacture or mandate or legalize any kind of behavior that's going to eradicate all those things. And ironically, in trying to be more tolerant, we bring about more, I get more violence. We bring about more yeah. discomforts. We bring about a lack of peace. And so I think this is where what Micah says then is, is really applicable now, because I think it's a call to saying, you believe so many nonsensical things. You accept so many nonsensical things. And why is that? It's because you've turned away from God. It, it is the giving over in a sense. But I'm almost feeling like it's, it's more than that. It's this idea that we've essentially lost our minds. And in, you know, this is kind of what, um, is it Muggeridge says this, that we've educated ourselves into imbecility. It's exactly yeah. that thing. It's not lack of education. It's not lack of logic. It's not lack of a priori processes. It's a lack of spiritual centeredness, centeredness in Jesus Christ himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good word. And, and you know, one of the things that um, is a downside to the way we're approaching Micah and just the way that modern Bibles divide up the text is when you look at some of what the text is saying, unless you keep reading past what we're talking about, you miss a flavor of it. And and this is what I ran into is I'm reading Calvin and I'm reading uh, Matthew Henry and they get to verse 10 and it says, arise and go for this is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. And right. I'm thinking, right, exile. Yeah, this is the punishment. But if you continue to read and I'm just going to sneak peek the next one. Uh, when you get to verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, and I'll gather the remnant of Israel I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, uh, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. And so, so that, that command to arise and go is not speaking of the punishment of the exile. It's right. actually speaking to the remnant of Israel. Basically, God is going to exile those who are wicked, but he's also going to sweep those who are not wicked. He's going to take the remnant out of the land with the exiles, basically in order to purify the land. So when they return, they can return to a land free of corruption. And so when it says here, um, arise and go, this is no place to rest. He's basically telling them this place is no longer the promised land right now. Right. The, the 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 association of rest and the promised land is a biblical theme that flows all throughout Genesis, all the way through into the, the reign of the kings, all the way into the prophets here and then culminates in Christ. Right. So when he's saying this is no place to rest, he's basically saying to them and Jeremiah picks up on this theme. Right. Jeremiah, as a prophet, says, go into exile. 
build houses, start a family. You're going to be there a while, but that's not necessarily a bad thing for them because God is going to prune the land. He's going to restore it to a sort of state of sanctuary for the remnant when they return. And Matthew Henry makes this, I think this really beautiful point for us. Um, You know, he's talking about his own context, but I think it applies to us as well. And he says here, we may apply this to our state in the present world. It is polluted. There's a great deal of corruption in the world through lust, and therefore we should arise and depart out of it. Keep at a distance from the corruption that is in it and keep ourselves unspotted for it. And this is just this is just another one of those sentences. It is not our rest. It was never intended to be so. It was designed for our passage, but not for our portion, our in, but not our home. And so we, we have this tendency and this goes, goes all the way back to the beginning of the show. We're talking about our language. We're talking about the thing, you know, we talk about the things we watch on television. We talk about the way we treat our wives or our coworkers or our, you know, other people we encounter the fact that we're polite and nice to people in the drive-thru lane. You know, it's funny. I I get drive-thru maybe once a week when I'm doing grocery shopping and, um, when they make a mistake, the next time I come through, I simply ask politely, uh, you know, there was a mistake on my order last time. Would it be possible for me to get a complimentary meal tonight? Every single time they say yes. And every single time they say, you know, I really appreciate you just being respectful and asking politely. And there's right. something different about me in that I take my time to be respectful. That really does catch people's attention. And this is what it is, is we have, here's, here's Henry again. We have no continuing city let us therefore arise and depart, right? So the prophet is telling the remnant of God's people, get out of here, get out of the land, go with the exiles into Babylon, because this is no longer the promised land, but it will be again, because in the future I will send Christ and Christ will, uh, will sanctify and make his people holy for all time. And we just really need to remember that because I think sometimes we get so caught up um, in trying to, sort of fix the world. Not that we shouldn't seek social restoration and social justice, um, not in the sort of woke sense, but in the true sense of social justice. Um, We get so caught up in that, we forget that at the very best, we're kind of arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And it's going to take the Lord himself to recreate and reconstruct this world to be that true garden sanctuary that he always intended it to be. And we should draw from some of the themes that we've already talked about that Mike has been outspoken with respect to the spiritual disease that's happening with the people and how this relates to that. There is in this yet this beautiful cross-reference of the idea that they are to separate themselves from that grievous sin. And you see in here like this amazing, really dramatic language. It's the same type of language that Jesus himself uses when he doesn't just say to people, you know, listen, sin is bad. Stop it. He says things like, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And so you have here these amazing combination of words. For instance, in verse 10, which you just read, that's the rise and go. Not only is this not a place to rest, because why is it not a place to rest? Because of uncleanness that destroys with not just destruction, but a grievous destruction. So there's a weightiness here to what's going on. And I think this is the same plea that Paul makes elsewhere, which is, the be separate, be separate people. And what strikes me about the example you gave, which once again is something where we're talking about a really simple act of love, which is when somebody has made a mistake, 
even where you've offered them remuneration for a service, you do not take it upon yourself to exercise that right. Essentially say like, because the, the, another person, even a well-meaning person, even a loving person might go in and say, well, I paid for this product and I deserve to get what I paid for. Right. And so I deserve to come on as strong as I want to about that. And so by you going in and being gentle and being kind, not only, of course, doing the very thing that you would like to receive in return when you have made some kind of error, but you're also essentially saying this person has worth and they yeah. have worth because God has made them and created them. And that sounds so trite, but most of the time, and myself included, we walk around using other people and instead of valuing who they are and making that like the, the principal way in which we're going to approach them, even when it comes to the small things, because really the small things dictate and it really express what kind of people we are. Yeah. And so I love that here Micah has this challenge. Like you said, it's, it's both the arise and go. Like you're going to go into exile, but in some ways for us, it's the same challenge. It's arise and go. Basically, get rid of, forsake your sin, mortify it, work hard at doing that. That's something that we've talked about a lot in this podcast as well. Because when you do not do that, this uncleanness, this innocence, even in the, maybe the language that we use, which we started at the top of the show, it leads to destruction. It destroys. And the destruction that comes with it is grievous. It, it's not yeah. just bad. It's soul-sucking. It is debilitating. It is, it'll make you weep and gnash your teeth. God does not want that for his children. He wants, of course, the exact opposite, this yeah. abundant life. And that, again, comes through the obedience. So he's done such a great job here at juxtaposing what it means to be obedient and what it means to be disobedient. There, there's almost a sense where we should want to do these things for God. And sometimes that is at least my prayer. I'm not, you know, like... Uh, sanctified enough to say that there are times where I just have to pray, God, would you, would you help me to want, to want, to love you, to do these things? I'm still yeah. learning what it means to walk in that kind of passionate love toward God, where everything I do is just an expression of that love. A at the same time, it's almost like God has, has in our weakness given us this wonderful testimony that we can look at this and say, God, I want to do these things because I love you first. But I also want to do them because I want the blessings of obedience, because I want to be your child and I want to walk yeah. in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So do you see, like for me there, there's something that's beautiful in that God even condescends by saying, like, if it's just not enough that I'm so lovely, so amazing, so brilliant, so magnificent, so everything that you're not, that you want to fall in love with me and obey me, can you at least see that like a good loving parent, I know the best way forward and that when you obey me, there will be blessing in that obedience. And I just love that God is that kind that yeah. he would do that for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any better way to end that episode is, is you know, God is good and gracious to those who are his. He, he is kind and loving. And, and just as we talked about earlier, right? God's words are pleasant and delightful to those whom he has chosen and whom he has saved. And so we, we as his people should always be grateful and thankful, even when he brings a word of chastisement, um, or when he brings a hard providence that is oriented towards our sanctification, we should be grateful for that because he is always acting in our, in our benefit. And so even though, you know, even as the exiles here, the people who are going to be going to exile, probably were not looking at this as a positive thing. Ultimately, it was still for their benefit that they were taken out of the land, that they were brought into exile, because that was in part what brought them to a place where they could repent and could be sanctified. So it, it, that's a, that's a good way for us to wrap up the, the episode here in this section. I'm realizing that as we talk about this subject and we're getting ourselves into the, the text, which is 
it's really the best of all conversations, isn't it? I yeah. mean, what a wonderful thing to be able to speak openly and to have our voices recorded in a conversation that's about the scriptures and about Jesus Christ. And so to that end, I'm realizing that it's possible that when we do, when we're doing this series, we're talking about the Bible, that this is the fastest I ever speak because I feel like I just get really excited yeah. or that's the New Englander coming out. And it's true. Because you seem like so much more measured and like calm as we're talking about this. <laughs> and I just realized like I didn't even take a breath in like two minutes there. It was just all straight out. So I apologize for everybody that's listening at like two or three times speed because it may just sounded like I was an auctioneer for a large portion of this conversation. I think it's because I live so close to Vermont. There's like a permanent <laughs> contact high from the state. <laughs> I knew I knew there was gonna be another like I knew I knew when we started this episode that we have like chiastic structure, that there'd be no doubt that we'd have to bookend it by some kind of other returning or reprisal of the Vermont theme. And you do yeah. not let me down. And it's I'm true. so thankful. <laughs> Don't do drugs, kids, even pot. Don't do it. Don't do it. God gave us the green plant for food, not for smoking. Yeah. Wow, that's a, is that a bumper sticker? Because if it's not. Not in Vermont, it's not. Again, you never disappoint. I love that Vermont came up back up again. Like it's possible it's going to happen even before we get to the honor everyone part. You, you know? know who talks in a really slow measured sense? Who? Todd from the Average Everyday Version <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> uh, we love you, Todd. Even though we you're wrong you, about everything. Come, come hang out on our podcast. Let's do like this joint podcast thing where we talk about worship and reformed worship and. That would be great. You know, there's an open invitation to uh, to Todd. I almost said pod. To Todd. <laughs> no, you did. To join the Society of Reform Podcasters as long as he becomes reformed. That's the only bar of entry there is you got to be reformed. So get with it. Get with it. I love yeah. that. that. That could also be a bumper sticker. Get with it. The reform get with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. We have all these great ideas. I'm waiting for somebody to come and execute. We're just throwing out all these amazing <laughs> opportunities for somebody to take advantage of. And I'm waiting for like a, a printer or somebody to just you know snatch all these things up. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a little nervous with this closing here because I was going to say I got to go because I have the munchies. <laughs> but I'm kind of nervous that someone's going to actually think that I do drugs. I'm very anti-drugs. I do not do drugs. As am I. Do we need yes. to do a more formal disclosure or, or, you know, disclaimer at this point? Not disclosure. Disclaimer at this point? Or <laughs> Do you have something to disclose, Jesse? No. No, no. Yeah. All I want to disclose is that I'm definitely not condoning or in favor of any kind of drugs. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Neither I don't even of us really do drugs. drink caffeinated coffee because I just yeah. can't handle the caffeine. But I don't even like to take medicine if I don't have to. Yeah, I'm I'm down with now I feel like we're just overemphasizing it. Like I've never taken Advil. Get that out of here. What am now I ever monster? Like, they're hiding something. They're they're <laughs> yeah, overcompensating for sure. We better we better land this plane because I don't know how to get off otherwise. And if we if we're on a crashing plane, we know how to buckle our seatbelts now. There's only one way. I'm looking at you, Royal Dutch Airlines. I, I feel like this is an episode of Seinfeld waiting to happen because, you know, like at the last like 30 seconds of Seinfeld, like the main joke of the episode comes back. Yeah. I feel like that's what this just was. Yeah, this is particularly strong. Like our humor on this was five star easily. <laughs> it's always it's always the best when you rate yourself five stars. <laughs> 
All right, Jesse, why don't you take us home here? I, I can't. The plane crashed, and we're just <laughs> limping out now at this point. But until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.